God bless you as you take your seat. God bless you as you take your seat. Wow. Uh, may I just encourage you as we as we conclude this series, this has been a desire of mine and Kim's for uh, the beginning of the school year here, is uh, that you'd get a heart after the lost. That we'd begin our year this year with this mission of Jesus, heart after the hurting and the lost. Uh, and I, I can see it's taken place in some of our lives, and that's wonderful. And so tonight we're going to conclude our series, actually. Uh, and so can I encourage you, uh, if you're there, awesome, keep going. If you're not there, uh, I believe God's going to speak uh, in a specific personal way to you, in a corporate way to all of us. Uh, and can I encourage you to be open to what God has for you tonight through Kim. So let's give it up to Kim. Thanks. Well, I just, I want to just hit the ground running, Okay. So I want to do a little bit of recapping um, just on what bringing it all together, this being our last night on Anointed, what have we been talking about? And Gavin mentioned earlier um, what Phil Spolstra was talking about on our Monday chapel. So if you weren't here, here's like the Coles Notes version. Here's the little blip of what he was saying. And so first off, Phil, if you weren't here, he works with the POC in the BC district, and he does church revitalization. And one of his key pieces was he believes that if he's going to, you know, if we're going to work on church revitalization, we're going to have to work with pastoral um, revitalization. And so he's committing to revitalizing pastors and uh, really going with the mentality that healthy pastors equal healthy churches. Um, and so Phil shared his heart with us. His, he shared his heart for you, for Summit. And um, he, his heart was that you would lead turnaround churches, churches that um, there's movement, there's, and, and this I would add, this is a caveat that I would add, a lead doesn't mean that you're the lead pastor, okay? Okay, so you're here, which means you're part of the leading of it, okay? Okay, um, he also said that to, uh, he wanted you, and I'm putting myself in this because it's good, uh, to have a love for serving and leading God's people. He commissioned us to keep the romance alive. Um, that is with Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> and he's, he challenged us to have a passion for people. And that just fits so perfectly um, in our series on anointed. And so we've been on this journey of anointed. In the first week, we talked about how really anointing means what? Set apart. Yes. Consecrated, set apart for a particular purpose and empowered for that purpose, empowered by the Holy Spirit for that purpose. And, um, and that really anointing throughout the Old Testament was this, the, this preparation for the Messiah and for Jesus to come. And Jesus then came, declared that he was, in fact, the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And, um, and then the anointed then becomes the anointer and anoints you and I um, to continue on with what we are, what what his mission is. And that's sort of what we've been picking up throughout the, the whole, the last couple of weeks. 
um, that there has been this transfer of leadership, Gavin talked about, um, that we, yes, we share in the blessing of the anointing. We share in the blessing, but we also share in the responsibility of the anointing. And then we took a look last week on what it means, what's the character of, the, of an anointed person? What's the character look like? And uh, Gavin asked a really pointed question. He asked, how's your heart? And that was a really good question. And I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves quite often. How is my heart? And we need to check in with our heart. And, um, and I think tonight that will flourish again because we're like get built upon because our heart has to be God's heart and God's heart has to be our heart. So then when we ask, how is our heart? That just makes it a bit more of a, a fuller question. Um, yeah, last week we were challenged with the idea of being consistent in our lives, that being an anointed person, we have to have consistency in our life. What's our life look like in private? Does it look the same as what it is in, in, in public and vice versa? And, um, and then we were reminded or challenged that um, repentance needs to walk hand in hand um, with anointing, right? Like that's, that worked for David, <laughs> right? That's a really important uh, repentance. And so that's sort of where we are. And Gavin gave us this concept, or he sort of started to unpack this, our concept of identity. Um, it's not about who we are, but it's about whose we are. And then the unpacking of that equation goes, it's not just about whose we are, but who we are for. And tonight, we really, really want to tackle that, who are we for? And, um, and so when we were talking about identity... Um, we have in the back of our minds, we have Romans 8 stuck in the back of our minds. I do. That will forever be stuck in the back of my mind. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. This sonship implies freedom. And we, by his name, or by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, so that in order we may share in his glory. So that's in the back of our minds of identity, of who we are, whose we are, and that definitely affects who we are for. Because... If we, are, if we are sons and daughters of God, we are no longer slaves to sin. Yeah? Yes, that's what Romans 6 tells us. So then we are no longer slaves to sin. We are sons, of God, sons and daughters of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. That means that we share in the, um, in the mission of Christ. Last week, just shortly, briefly mentioned um, Jesus when he was lost in the temple. And when his mom came to find him, he said, Woman... Cheeky. <laughs> Woman, wouldn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Essentially, I would be about my father's business. And so if we are co-heirs with Christ, then we are supposed to be about our father's business. Just like Christ is about his father's business, then we are to be about our father's business. Um, and like Jesus, so we've been, he's been anointed. And so, again, we looked at this. We've been anointed. 
And so if we've been anointed to be a part of God's business or the Father's business, then what is the Father's business is another question that I want to propel our evening. But before you jump up and say Luke 4, because that's probably what you're thinking, right? Let me pause and ask you another question. Have you ever met somebody or do you know somebody who is a small business owner? Small business owner? Yep. Does anybody here know somebody who is a small business owner that has like their business? Oh, a bug. Um, that has like a, a business of the arts? Like, yes. Okay. So that it, usually when they have a business that is about selling some sort of art or uh, something like that, and you can do the interpretation of that for yourself. Um, it's not about the money, is it? Nope. <laughs> <You're> s- <laughs> we have an artist in the house. We have a small business owner in the house. Hello, Greg. <laughs> it's not about the money. In fact, they're probably one of the most passionate people ever. Because their whole life is all about their particular craft and their business. Their life rises and falls on their business. If they don't sell their craft, if they don't sell their piece, then they don't get to eat. They are the most passionate people, I think. I would never, ever want to be a small business owner. It's not in me. I just don't have it. Now... One of my all-time favorite rom-coms ever, this is my favorite, my all-time favorite rom-com ever is You've Got Mail, okay? Starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Okay, so Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan is a beautiful story. And if you um, want to see it, I have the TVT at home. (laughs) Okay, there they are. What a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. So let me tell you about You've Got Mail. If you haven't had the opportunity to watch this movie, that's a shame. I'll fill you in. So the story goes like this. (laughs) There are these two people who happen to find each other on an over 40 chat room one night. And so they've begun this quaint, cute little romance. It's, it's pretty you know, pretty light. And they, they begin this little romance by email. You've got mail. And so they, you know, like they send little fluffy, trivial little things to each other, right? Like somebody saw a butterfly on the train and the fall makes you want to have a bouquet of sharpened pencils, right? Like Don't get me started on this movie. I could quote the entire thing. Anyways. So, we have Tom Hanks, who plays Joe Fox. And Meg Ryan is Kathleen Kelly. And Joe Fox is the owner of this brand new Fox bookstore. And Fox Books is like chapters. Okay, so it's got its discount books and its delicious cappuccinos. Meanwhile, as Fox Books is coming to town in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, um, things are getting 
riled up in the book world because Kathleen Kelly owns a quaint little shop, a little kid's bookstore called the Shop Around the Corner. And so the shop around the corner is this beautiful shop where you can get any kind of kid's bookstore. And Kathleen Kelly even reads kids' stories to kids. It's beautiful. And But the Big Bad Fox store is coming to town and now starting to take their customers. So, uh uh-oh. Small business owner is starting to freak out. Kathleen Kelly. Meanwhile, romance is just getting really beautiful all online. They're sending wonderful emails, and it's just so sweet. Now, somewhere in the mix... Joe Fox realizes that Kathleen Kelly is the one who he is putting out of business. Now, she is like sticking it to the man because she figures she's very passionate about her store. And her store has been open for 40 years because it wasn't just her store. It was her mother's store. And she, right? And... uh, And so she even has her mother's hanky available for snotty-nosed kids, if need be. Okay, like this is a really big deal. And so Kathleen Kelly goes to the mattresses with Joe Fox. But funny enough, Joe Fox told her to go to the mattresses. It's a quote from a movie. It Watch the movie. You'll get it all. Anyways, so eventually... the Fox bookstore just obliterates the shop around the corner and she has to, right? She has to close down. I know. (laughs) Okay. So, but okay. Remember she doesn't know who her love interest is yet. It's all still a mystery. Okay. So I know, I've got you on the edge of your seat on this rom-com. I know. Okay, so I won't spoil it for you. No, we're only going to go up to like an hour and 15 minutes of an hour and a half, 45-minute movie. Okay, so here we have Kathleen Kelly home, just destitute. And she has a cold to boot. Okay. So she is just absolutely destitute in her home. And, um, and remember Fox, like Joe Fox knows who Kathleen Kelly is and that he actually decides that he's in love with her. Um, at first he hated her cause she was like giving him the gears, but then he fell in love with her. And so he decides that he wants to be her friend and try to like actually woo her. Not wooer from the guy from the email, but Joe Fox wooing her. So he shows up to her house with a bouquet of daisies. Gentlemen, daisies. So daisies are Kathleen Kelly's favorite flowers. They're the happiest of flowers. And so she, he comes to her door. She does not want him there because he is her arch nemesis. Um, but he comes... And he's being friendly. And then he says, you know, he's starting to apologize for, you know, shutting down her family business. And he says, it's not personal. It's business. Bad news. Joe Fox. 
He needs some tips. Anyways, so like you, this statement really bothers Kathleen Kelly. And so she says to him, I'm sick of that. I'm sick of that. All that means is that it wasn't personal to you, but it was personal to me. Whoa, right? Meanwhile, she's snotty. Then she says, it's personal to a lot of people. And then she says this, what's so wrong with being personal anyways? Whatever, and she goes like this, whatever anything else is, it ought to begin with being personal, right? Segue to Jesus. (laughs) See, hour and 15 minutes of an hour and 45 minute movie. I'm not telling you. Okay, so. The father's business, it's personal. It's real personal. Okay? It's not just business. It's not just business. It's personal. It's God's passion. It's his passion for people. And so what, what is his passion? And really, isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why you come to Summit? To know the heart of God? To know the passion of God? That's why we're here. And I am convinced that when Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he's given that scroll and he reads that the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I believe that when he's saying that, we are hearing the heart of God. We are hearing the Father's business. We are hearing the passion of God's heart. That's God's business. That is the very personal passion of God. The good news to the poor, which means the release of captives, the sight to the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. That is his passion. His passion is people. And my friends, that has to be our passion too. That has to be our passion. Our passion has to be for other people. And if you would say to me, but Kim, I'm not a people person, I would love to talk to you further. Because I believe that we are all built differently, but we are all built for a passion to see people come to Jesus. And our passion has to align with God's and his passion is people. So God's passion is the poor. We see the heart of God for the poor and the marginalized throughout scripture. It is, it's all over the place, all over the place. So we even see it at the very beginning, right in Exodus. We see in Exodus 23, 6, it says, In lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. And then in the same chapter, he says, oh, this is kind of funny. He says, but the land, um, the land be, re- be renewed. Okay, so he's talking about like the Sabbath year of harvesting. He says, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among the harvest, uh, sorry, among you harvest whatever grows on its own. Leave the rest for the wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves. What's the big deal? Well, there's a little bit of an interesting tidbit here. 
Because this agricultural system that God put in place to have the seventh year to rest, um, this, this Sabbath year that's called a Shemitah, literally means to release. Interesting. To release the captives. Interesting. I don't know. Maybe it's just a, a, just a well-used word, but it just seems interesting to me that God would, in his very nature of how he's even set up agriculture, that he would release people from working a land that he would release a land from being worked, that he would release the poor to have access to resources that they would not otherwise have. That's interesting to me. Interesting that God would be so much about the poor that he would set up an entire agricultural system that helps them out. Interesting. God says that his people in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 15.11, that there there will be some poor in the land. Um, but that the Israelites need to address their, um, address their needs. And so we actually hear exactly the passion of, of Jesus in Deuteronomy 10, uh, 12 to 20. And so you can even turn to your Bibles. To, we're going to read that together. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 20. It says, and now, O Israel, what does your God, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the laws, the Lord's commands and decrees and I, that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affections on your forefathers and loves them, loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today, his love for people. Circumcise your hearts, he says, therefore do not be stiff-necked any longer for the Lord your God is, a, is Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. God gave the Israelites really clear, strict instructions how to treat the poor. Really clear. Even in these little bits, can you hear the heart of God? Can you hear his heartbeat, his passion for people? He cares about those who are marginalized. He cares about those who are outside of the, of the social norm. He cares about them. He sets particular things in place so that they would be cared for. He has a passion for people. He has a passion for the poor, a passion for the captive, passion for the blind. He has a passion for the oppressed. 
And he had a passion for them before he even, before they were even oppressed, before they were even made. He had a passion for them. And so because people, broken people are his passion, people who need freedom, they are his business. He commissions us, his people, well, he commissioned them, the Israelites, he commissioned them to take care of the marginalized. But they didn't. And just as we saw uh, a couple weeks back how we saw the, 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 the narrative of um, anointing, we see this narrative of the overlooked being overlooked. We see in the Old, Old, Old Testament scriptures from a bunch of the prophets, because almost all the prophets call out the Israelites and essentially say, you didn't take care of these people. You didn't. You didn't take care of them. See, God told them how to take care of them, and they lost sight of God's personal passion for people, and they turned their focus and made their personal passion themselves. And so we see it. We see it in Isaiah, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. So, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause for the widow. They're being challenged. They weren't doing this. And now the prophet is saying, hey, stop it. Do what you're supposed to do. And again, we hear Ezra, a prophet, like essentially, hey, snap to it. And says in Ezra 1649, he says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Micah 6, 8, one of my absolute most favorite verses ever. And, you know, it's the kind of verse that, again, you, pillow, you need a point on a pillow. And yet, it is a bit of a slap on the hand. Actually, more than that. It's the prophet calling the Israelites' attention, saying, hey, What does the Lord require of you? You didn't do it. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. We see this in Zechariah 7.9. It says that this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Again, it's this, like, bring it back in, people. You got off course. Your, your focus isn't on the passion of my heart. You're not about my personal passion. You're about your personal passion. And Israel's attention just kept on turning from the needy and what God called them to do for the needy and the marginalized, and they turned to their own needs. And this is... One of the reasons why they needed the Messiah. Now, the book of Amos is a fascinating book and speaks all about this very thing. Amos is a book where God exposes his heart and actually his heart breaks because the people who are supposed to be about his business became completely consumed with self-indulgence. 
We see in Amos that the poor are getting poorer at the expense of the richer getting richer. They have given into every indulgence, every luxury, and Amos describes it like this. In Amos 6, uh, verse 4 to 6, he says, You lay on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on your choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on your musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlfuls and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. One commentator says that um, at no point in the Old Testament literature are there to be found so vivid a description of luxurious and perverted social life as in Amos 6. And what gives Amos such this definitive indignate, like this, this, this indignation in him that's really just divinely inspired is not necessarily what their acts were. Because their acts weren't particularly immoral. What was really like driving the indignation of Amos and God is the excess. The loss of sight for those who are needy. That vision would be turned from those around to what's happening right here. And that's what really was the issue. Not necessarily the way that they behaved the excess of their behavior. One of the, um, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Roy, sorry, this is heavy, but we'll get through. Roy Honeycutt, which is a wonderful name. Honeycutt. <laughs> Honeycutt. <laughs> if there's a dating couple in here, I think that you should make that. Your term of endearment. Ah, oh, Honeycutt. Right? Like, that would be funny. Anyways, okay, so Honeycutt wrote this book uh, called Amos and His Message. And he provides, at the time, this picture of uh, the infusion of Israelite, the Israelite attitude with modern-day consumerist mentality. And by modern day, he's writing this in 1963. So modern, at a stretch, but it fits. And so this is what he says. Modern America, and I would say, and Canada, may have foam rubber sofas instead of ivory inlaid couches. May have filet mignon steaks rather than lamb from the flock and calf from the stall. But it has succumbed to the same temptations as did Israel. Wine may not be consumed in the temple bowls any longer, but per capita consumption of alcohol in America today would startle even Amos. The jukebox, let's just say Spotify, uh, may have, may have displaced the harp of Amos's day, but the ruckus of music has remained to identify a society gone mad with self-indulgence. Luxury-minded society will anoint itself with the finest cosmetics, despite the passage of 2,700 years. In essence, nothing really has changed in the self-indulgent world except the day on the calendar. That's heavy stuff. But 
we do that, right? That we anoint ourselves with the finest of society's best. I am so challenged. And my prayer is that, oh God, if I have ever anointed myself with the finest of society's stuff, forgive me that I would replace your anointing and put on something else. And so after that really low blow or really heavy stuff, here we sit. Are we self-indulgent? Or do we carry God's heart in, in our heart? Have we succumbed to the temptation of society to anoint ourselves with the finest of things from our culture? Or do we share the personal passion for people? Do we have a passion for the marginalized? Or do we have our own passions as the most important, like the people that Amos was speaking to? So I just wanted to pause, maybe, and ask ourselves a few questions. Do we share God's passion for people? Do we? Do I? Do we? Does our heart break when we see people who are oppressed? Does our heart ache when we see the blinded who cannot get a glimpse of God's goodness? Do, we, do our hearts crumble when we see the man or woman who are standing with their sign at the light? Like, does that do it? Does it, does my heart beat with God's heart beat when I see them? Or am I so focused on my own freedom that I forget that freedom isn't just for me? Am I so focused on fixing my eyes on Jesus that I don't look around the world and see people who are hurting and actually need me to do something? These are the things that I think about that I'm very challenged with this week. Um, And these are the things that we need to think about. I I wish I had a joke here. Okay, so just an aside. The very first uh, week that Gavin preached, he was just chatting a little bit, and uh, he was trying to get people to, like, you know, engage. And he says, am I paddling my own canoe? And I thought that was the funniest thing ever. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's a place where I can use that tonight. There's no place yet, I don't think. Um, So I'm just going to use it as, like, a bit of a point of a breath. Am I paddling my own canoe? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So who are the poor? We've been talking about the poor. The poor are important. We are to bring good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Um, which really uh, begs the question, if, we're, if the, one of the questions that we're working with is who are we anointed for? Uh, so who are the poor? Um, and So that's all in there. Sort of the same question. So the poor here refers to, just as we would think it would be, it's those who are living either in the socially or economic limited environment. That's 
what that word means when in that text. There's also this idea of the pious poor, um, and we see a lot of um, we see a lot of texts in Second Samuel. Amos talks about the pious poor, and these people, the pious poor, are are those are people who are the are the humble people. Commentators say that these particular type of people are the ones who are open to God. They're the people who know they're poor, who know they're in need. Those are the pious people, pious poor. And there's this um, challenge of, okay, we need to, like, meet these people because they're ready to go. Like, they know they need something. Um, But we know that the poor is also the oppressed, the blind, the downtrodden. I don't know if we need to list every single person that might fit under the poor because I think we know who the poor are. I think we know who the marginalized are. And if we don't, then perhaps we're just not looking because they're people who are burdened, people who don't know Jesus, right? People who are just not the kind of people that we might hang out with. They're the people who are fighting some really internal battles. They're the poor. And this text Jesus is quoting, he's saying that we need to bring freedom to the poor, good news to the poor, full stop. Like, that's it. Good news to the poor. But in that, there is release recovery, and freedom. That's what God brings when we bring good news to the poor. Recovery, freedom, release. And he's setting free the blind. That really, when it talks about setting free the blind, that really does allude to, one, that the physical healing that Jesus does, but then also salvation. And his heart really, this has been his heart the whole time. We see, again, we see this constantly in scripture. And in Isaiah 58, 6, it says that it's not the, this is him when he's talking about worship. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. To be out there, to be spreading the gospel, preaching the gospel to the poor, that is not outside of worship. That is worship. We get great joy out of worship because God is so good, right? We get to worship God through meeting the needs of the poor. It's not a task. It's worship. That's God's heart. He loves people, right? It's a joy. Do I feel that way? This is the Father's business. Jesus lived it out every single day, right? When he walked with the people that he shouldn't have walked with, when he touched the people that he shouldn't have touched, when he sat with the people that he shouldn't have sat with, when he went to the homes that he shouldn't have gone to homes with, when he talked to children, BT Dub, please get involved in kids' ministry. Okay, I am going to stand on this soapbox for just a second. All right? 
get involved in kids' ministry. If you want to change lives, if you really, really care about the good news and changing people's lives, start when they are young. Okay? Please, somebody get the heart for kids. Because you're not just getting a heart for kids, you're getting a heart for youth, and you're getting a heart for young adults. And then they grow up and they become parents. And then they grow up and they become business people. Okay? Don't just see them as snotty-nosed people. They are not. At this time, they were very marginalized. Even the disciples held them at bay, and Jesus said, No, let the kids come to me. Please, somebody, get the heart of Jesus for kids, please. Okay? Sorry, I'm a kid's pastor at heart. Okay, moving on. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Jesus cares about the poor. He cares about the poor so much that he even put himself in their place even in his teaching. And he said in Matthew 25, right? When I was hungry, you came and you fed me. When I was thirsty, you came and brought me a drink. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And they said, how would we do this, right? That's the parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. When did we ever do this? When you did this for the least of these, you did it to me. When we care, we worship Jesus. Jesus didn't consider the religious officials and what they thought, and he didn't consider social norms, and he didn't consider his position as something to cling to. My friends, we don't sit in this room um, anointed, absolutely full of God's anointing, set apart for a purpose, and empowered for a purpose, we don't just sit in this room for a great reputation in Christian churches. We sit in this room for now because there is a very, very personal passion of Jesus, a very personal passion of our God. And he has anointed you to pick up passion. He's anointed me to pick up the passion and do something with it. We don't sit here for a great reputation. Let us not consider that. It's got to be our business too, right? It's got to be our business too. And it, and, and even though I went on the whole kids thing, let us not think that because we are thinking about kids ministry, youth ministry, worship ministry, opening, starting a not-for-profit, that that designates, like, we are just, we are to preach the good news to the poor. The poor. Okay? Okay. So it's our business, right? And so is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in his spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Asks Paul in Philippians. Then agree wholeheartedly with each other. Love one another and work together with one mind and purpose. The passion 
of Jesus. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others better than yourself. Don't look out. Don't look out only for your own interests, but be in the interests of others too. That's the personal passion of the Father. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. He did not consider equality with God as something to be clung to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position as a slave and was born as a human. That's the father's business. That's the father's business. To humble. To get to become poor. So that we can actually care for the poor. He did it. What does that mean for us? And so, some other questions. If we are anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, to bring, proclaim freedom... What does that look like? And so I've been challenged with a few questions. And so, you know, I'm just going to keep challenging. So join with me in the challenge. We're in this together. Are we? This is a question that Paul or that Phil asked us. Are we focused on preaching the good news of Jesus to others? Or are we interested in our own preferences and platforms? We have to ask ourselves that. That's, and Phil gave an example about him when he was younger and how sort of like it was sort of this flock stealing, right? That a Christian went to that church and now, oh, there's growth, right? Um, we do that now too, right? We go to different places because we like the way that they do certain things. Um, and so just a question, do we focus on preaching instead of our personal preferences? Next, I want to ask the question. Oh, this one's a good one before I move on. Okay, so um, just a little quote for us to sort of mull on and chew on a little bit. That church is not necessarily just for us to have our personal preferences. Bonhoeffer wrote that the church is the church only when it exists for others. That makes me pause, right? Like that just makes me uncomfortable because I've made it about me. I just have. Um, and so that makes me pause. So are we willing or are we living close enough to the marginalized that they can actually hear our message and see the difference that Jesus is making in our lives? Are we actually close enough? You know that phrase? Like, if a tree fell down in the forest, but nobody was there to hear it, did it actually make a sound? Right? You know that? If a Christian is preaching the gospel but there's nobody around to hear it. Are they preaching the gospel? Now, I know that that has theological holes. It's just a little metaphor, just a little thought provoker. But my challenge, the the personal challenge that I've had is I need to get close to people who are marginalized. If I am to preach the gospel to the poor, then I need to be where the poor are. I have to be. Or else my message is not very loud. Um, Are we listening? Are we living close enough to the right people? And probably the right people are probably the wrong people. They're probably the people that are going to ride our last nerves sometimes. They're probably the people that require extra grace. And that's very good. 
and we should extend our love to them. Um, are we bringing freedom or do we hold on to accounts and hold wrongdoings over people's heads? I think if we're going to walk in the anointing of God, we have to get really good at forgiving. I think we have to get good at forgiving people. Um, Jesus talked about that, I think. Do we live our lives reflecting God's light so that the blind's attention is shone to Jesus? Are we actually willing to do are we actually willing to do something with the power that the Holy Spirit has given us and do something to bring freedom, release and recovery? Are we actually willing to do something? Um Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I guess I'm liking him today. He said, we cannot stand by for ambivalence will not dissolve the problem. We are not simply, we're not simply to bind up the wounds of victims be underneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. There's, I think we need to rise up perhaps on behalf of the poor and the marginalized. So, one last reflection. You know the you know the the parable about t- the talents and the one um, servant who got one talent and um, and he hid it, he buried it, and when when he was when the master came back, he said. Um, I hid it because I, was a, I knew you were a hard man, and I was afraid. I'm, I'm convinced that this is not about him being a bad steward, perhaps, or um, a really bad business person. I think that this has everything to do with him not knowing the master's business. I don't think that he got the master's heart at all. He didn't get the master's heart. So because he didn't get the master's heart, he hit it. My friends, I do, not, I, I do not want to hide our anointing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit in this chapel and be on this hill, and I am joining you in this statement. I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that. I don't want to do that myself. I don't want to sit here and hide my talent, hide my anointing, because that is not why God anointed me. Right? We need to get God's heart. Get his heart. And then do something. Let's, act- let's actually start using the anointing that is on our lives. You know, often we ask, why don't we see God do something? Perhaps if we did something, we would see God's power moving through us. Right? And so my challenge is for us together. Let's be in this together. Let's not hide this anointing. But let's like let's actually rise up and walk in the anointing, walk in the power that is actually given to us. We don't have to question it. God has given us power. He has empowered us for a purpose. So let's actually do the purpose. 
to preach the good news to the poor, to bring freedom to the cap, to the captives, to bring sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. That's our purpose. No matter what demographic you're working with, that's our purpose. Right? I'm going to ask the band to come on up and, um, and we're going to finish a little bit weird because why not? Okay. So first I want to say this, this is my prayer for us. Ephesians four, one and two, that as prisoners of the Lord, I urge us to live a life worthy of our calling. That we would live a life worthy of the anointing that God has placed on us. And so the band is going to, you know, noodle away a little bit for a moment. And I'd like for us to just consider a few questions. Ask yourself. I'm going to ask myself too. Am I living a life worthy of my anointing? Just be honest, right? It's not meant to be like, down. But let's just be honest with the question. Am I living my life worthy of my anointing? If you've got your journal, we're going to take actually a little, some time. We're going to take probably um, a little bit uncomfortable amount of time to actually reflect. So are we living a life worthy of my anointing? Secondly, am I actually being an agent of recovery, release, and freedom? Am I doing that? And if not, what areas does God need to do or do I need to let God change in my life? And how will I put that change into action? We're going to just sit and reflect. And then we'll do something after. Give a couple of minutes just to reflect and think.
So that question, those questions don't have to have a no, by the way. They can have a yes. But if it does have a no, then we need to do something about that, right? And it's so easy to talk about this stuff here, right? It's really easy to say amen here. It's really easy. It's really easy to have a passion for people in this room. But if I can just continue the challenge train a little, if you are not involved in a ministry, if you are not somewhere close to the marginalized, can I challenge you to get real close real soon? it's easy to say amen here, right? It's easy to get into like the hoop of, you know, encouraging me to preach something, but we have to live it out. See, that's the thing about when Jesus came, that was the difference about what happened with Jesus, because he didn't just read that text and sit down and never do anything again. read that text and then he lived it out and he gave his life for it and that's what our call is my friends let's give our lives for it it is so worth it you're living in such incredible freedom I'm living in such incredible freedom I have such a wonderful life because of Jesus and we are called to live up close and personal marginalized, whatever that looks like. And so my friends, let me say it one more time. If you are not at a place where you are doing ministry, where you are actively pursuing, building up, like getting close to the marginalized, see Jerry tomorrow. Let's put, let's put feet to these words. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I want to do one last thing. We're going to end in like three minutes. But this is how I want to end. That song, Let There Be Light. Great song, hey? Great song. Like wept through the whole thing. Um, Great song. And I think, I feel so compelled that we need to sing it and declare it. Declare those words prophetically. That Declare the words of Jesus. Let's sing it out right? Let's sing it out loud. As the song actually says, let's sing it out loud and then let's live it out loud, right? So band, would you lead us? Let's sing, let's declare, let's commit as we sing. I'm going to challenge you one more time. I think this will be it. One more time. Consider this. Before you sing out loud, are you ready to commit to doing it tomorrow? then let's sing it out. Join with me. Let's stand and let's sing it out.
照。